0: Good morning. It's good to be with you. We're in the middle of a, a Lenten season, and in the history of the church, this is a time when God's people uh, give up things that they find enjoyable. And I'm not sure which one of you gave up sunshine, but you failed, first of all. And next year, just do something a little more personal. It doesn't affect the rest of us. Uh, I don't know about you, but I have greatly enjoyed having some sunshine this weekend. It has been a nice reprieve. Um, we are uh, in the midst of a Lenten series on the prophets of repentance. And each week during this series of Lent, we have uh, taken a, a pretty kind of high-level look at the different minor prophets. And each week, we've been confronted with the otherness of God, His, his holiness, and the types of demands that He makes on His creation. And we've also been confronted with the love of God that we just sang about, a love that never runs out. Uh, It is deep and abiding, regardless of what God's people do to try and thwart it. This morning, we're going to be looking at the book of Haggai. And when I told my wife that I was preaching on that this week, she joked, uh, isn't that in the book of Mormon? Uh, It's one of those books that we don't really often get to. Uh, and, and we can't uh, print the whole book in the bulletin, so I am going to be summing up some aspects of the book as we've been doing the last few weeks, uh, and then we'll, we'll uh, get into some of the, the depths of Haggai's message for us as we go along. So let me read our Old Testament reading for us and pray, and we'll get started. This is Haggai 1, 2 through 15. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I might take pleasure and be honored in it, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, Which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people, they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God on the 24th day of the sixth month. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we just sang, your love is greater in the oceans. And if every person in this room and every person on your earth spent their entire life declaring it and meditating on it, we would still never reach the end. God, as we look at a passage where you are judging people in a way that causes them to return to you, would you remind us that even your judgments are loving, that you long for us to be placed firmly in your grasp, that we would never leave. Would you remind us this morning that you do not let go of your people? We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we look this morning at the message that Haggai has for us, we're going to basically be turning a diamond slowly. There are so many different themes and ideas that Haggai is tapping into that encompass much more than meets the eye. And before we kind of jump into what Haggai has to say, I want to just make a couple points about prophetic literature and scripture that Brian and I have been sort of hinting at but have never really come out and said explicitly during this series. And So one thing to keep in mind about prophetic literature and Christian scripture is that it's a mix of foretelling and forthtelling. So, part of prophetic literature is describing the future and, and talking about what God is going to do in the days to come. But oftentimes, that's not the primary thing that, that prophets are doing. Oftentimes, what they are doing is calling God's people to look back at what God has already done and then to recenter their lives on what God would have them to do now, to recenter their lives with God at the center. Another aspect of prophetic literature that can often um, cause us confusion, is that a lot of times, biblical authors, when they are doing that foretelling, that, that future-looking sort of thing, they're, they're looking at the future as a mountain range. And when you look at a mountain range from far away, all the peaks look really close together. You know, you can, like, do your thumb, and it's, like, only a thumbs-width apart. Have you guys ever done that? Squash people's heads? Um <laughs> When you get to the top of the mountain, though, you realize if if I'm going to summit that next mountain, it's going to be a while. It's going to take me a while to get there. And so from far away, they look close together. But as you get closer, you realize they're quite distant. And so the the prophets in Christian scripture will often juxtapose judgment and redemption right onto each other as if they're all happening on the same day. And yet as as we get closer to the events that they're talking about, especially in the life of Jesus, we realize that temporally, they're much further apart than we would have thought. And the final thing to keep in mind about prophetic literature, and it's something that we're going to look at this morning uh, throughout our time, is that prophetic literature and really all of Christian scripture is actually very, very sophisticated. We tend to look back on ancient people, and and whether it's their cosmology or their technology or their view of literature or what have you, we just assume that they were all primitive know-nothings and that, you know, now things have really started happening But when we really look at at what's happening in Scripture, literarily, these authors are quite astute, and Haggai is no different. So there are themes and allusions that if we were just to kind of blow past this short little book, we probably wouldn't get. But if we take time to really dig in and see what Haggai is saying in his own culture, I think we're going to start to see some deeper themes develop. So stick with me. We have to begin by placing Haggai on the map of Israel's history, so we can figure out what's going on. And then we're going to look at what Haggai has to say to God's people. And we're going, to, we're going to dive into his message by looking at three things. The real center, a temple is more than a temple, and actions speak louder than words. So, quickly, this is like a cliff notes of cliff notes of cliff notes of Israel's history. Are you ready? It has been said that the tragedy of, of Israel's history could be summed up in four words, chosen, privileged, presumptuous, and rebellious. So if, if you have read scripture from the beginning, you'll see that God has a people that he has chosen based on no merit of their own. He chooses them because he wants to choose them and he loves them. And as the storyline continues, you see that these people get enslaved in a country that is not their own. And God comes in, and he frees them from slavery. He brings them out of Egypt, and he brings them to a land that he promised their forebears, a land that he has prepared for them. And God makes covenants with this people. He makes promises to them. And as he does so, he he gives them warnings, and he says, if you follow what, what life should look like in the midst of my covenant, things will be great. Your life will be amazing. And if you don't follow the way this covenant is supposed to work, There will be famine and drought and terror and disease. And eventually, I will kick you out of this land in order to get your attention. Well, if you know the story of Israel, you realize that once the people enter the land, they get comfortable, and then they get presumptuous, and then they rebel. And God sends prophet after prophet after prophet to them, warning them, pleading with them to come back to God leading with them to turn back to God as their true center, and they refuse. Time after time after time, they refuse. And so eventually, God's people collapse. They're overrun by ruthless foreign armies that cart them off as the spoils of war to far-off lands. And it seems like the covenant that God had made with their ancestors is off. Because all of those rules, all of those descriptions of what the tabernacle and the temple and life should be like no longer apply because they're not in the land. But then, that's not the end of the story. In his mercy, God begins to make ways for his people to return back to the land. And groups of pilgrims begin to make the long journey back to Jerusalem, the city of God, the city where God once dwelt with people. And they begin this arduous task of rebuilding a life from long ago. And after the initial adrenaline of, of being home, being returned from exile, after that wears off, apathy begins to set in. And this is where Haggai comes in. He's, he's talking with returned exiles, people who are faced with the fact that returning home has not made everything better. When they were in captivity, they probably kept telling each other, if only we can get home, everything is going to be fine. And then they get there, and they realize that that's not actually true. And Haggai looks around Jerusalem, and as he gets word from the Lord, he begins to tell the people, the problem is that your priorities are all wrong. Your priorities are all mixed up. The people have misunderstood what it means for them to have returned to the land. The land of their memories was flowing with produce and prosperity. And they set to work rebuilding beautiful homes, trying to recapture an elusive golden age. And what Haggai is telling these people, and what he's telling us, is that they have lost their true center. The real center of their lives at this point had become comfort and self-fulfillment. And the sad irony of, of human life is that the harder we chase after fulfillment, the less satisfied we end up becoming. Haggai points this out to the people. He says, haven't you noticed your crops aren't producing as much? Your wine vats seem emptier than they should be. Food doesn't taste as good as it used to, and money is burning a hole right in your pocket, leaking out and leaving you destitute and wanting more. Boston College has a a center of wealth and philanthropy, and they do studies of the, the, the wealthiest of the wealthy in America. And a couple years ago, they did a study called The Joys and Dilemmas of Wealth. And they didn't spend a whole lot of time on the joys of wealth because they figured those were pretty self-evident. Seems like money can get you some pretty fun stuff. But they, they asked respondents anonymously so that they would feel comfortable um, answering honestly about how they felt personally, about their outlook of the world, about what things made them fearful and hopeful. And so the, the average respondent to this study was worth a net of $78 million. That's the average. Many of them were worth far more. It's interesting in this study that overwhelmingly, these people, net worth, $78 million, did not feel financially secure. They remained completely unsatisfied. When they were asked how much is enough, the answer was always a little bit more one respondent actually identified himself as a Christian, and he said that his goal in life was to love Jesus and to love his family and his friends. That was the primary thing that his life was about. This guy had hundreds of millions of dollars, and when he was asked what it would take for him to feel financially secure, he said, I need to have a billion bucks in the bank, a billion dollars, and then he would feel secure and most of us in this room are shaking your heads and we're saying, that is so absurd. It's so absurd that you could have hundreds of millions of dollars and not feel financially secure. I mean, after all, all we'd really need to feel secure is, what, like 60000 a year? Maybe eighty, Maybe $100,000, just kind of depending on how many kids you've decided to have. But let's face it, Portland is not a city that's known for people that are chasing money. Portland is a city that's known for people that have kind of figured out that, hey, maybe money is not really going to be as satisfactory as I thought it would. And so we're sitting here saying, $100,000, that's what you need, really? That's actually fairly absurd. I don't need that. Money won't make you happy. It won't make you comfortable, and it won't make you feel secure. You know, all I need to feel comfortable is my own house. If I have enough for my own house and my mortgage payment, I'll be fine. Or maybe I just need a new car, and then I'll feel better. Or a spouse. I need a child, and then I will feel secure, or a better job, or more education. If I can just work a few more hours at the office this week than I did last week, I'll feel secure. I'll know that they're not going to fire me. Just a haircut and some new clothes is all I need to feel normal. If I could just have a cigarette and a shot of whiskey, I could keep calm and carry on. If I'm the funniest guy in the room, if I have the most Facebook friends, if I listen to the coolest music, have the greenest car, or the most well-behaved kids, if only everybody here knew how much money I just put in that diaconal fund, if only that other person would like me, then I would be comfortable. Then I would have reason to live. I would be satisfied. And what we don't realize is that all of these things, as good as they might be, have a law of diminishing returns when we place them at the center of our lives. Drug addicts are told, almost as soon as they enter a a treatment program, that the first time they got high was the best time they will ever get high. And that's what they've been chasing all along. They're trying to get back to that first high, and it takes a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. And we all do that with every aspect of our lives. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And that's one of those phrases that conjures up very pastoral pictures in our mind, and there's maybe flowers on the other side of the hill, and it feels like, well, maybe that's not such a bad thing. Well, I grew up in small-town Oregon out in the country, and at one point my family decided to get a couple of sheep. And we uh, had gone away for a couple hours, and we came back, and I went out to the back field. Uh, and I couldn't find, like, the sheep that I was supposed to be in charge of. And we were looking all around, and we went down to the very far corner of our field, and this sheep had wanted the grass that was greener on the other side of the fence, and he had literally choked himself to death trying to get to it. This is how all of us will meet our end if we don't figure out that these things are false centers in our lives. We will literally kill ourselves trying to find fulfillment and we will always find it to be elusive. In your quiet, quietest moments, when you're alone with just your thoughts, I guarantee you, whether you have been a Christian for 25 years or this is the first time you have set foot in a church, you know deep down the things that you're chasing do not satisfy you. They will always leave you wanting more. And the message of Haggai to us is that God is the true center of all things. He is the true center of the universe, and therefore he is to be the true center of our own lives. And you can't short-circuit this. You can't go around God to get his gifts. You can't say that God is your center just because you really want the gifts, because what's really happening is you're trying to skirt God and get right to the good things he can give you. Now, Haggai is a very short book. There's only two chapters and in those two chapters, there are, there are 24 verses in which Haggai has a direct word from the Lord to the people. And in 24 verses of speaking, Haggai 23 times says, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. He uses this name over and over and over. And it's a name that reminded God's people that this was a God who was in charge of everything, everything a God who sat enthroned in the heavens, who had the stars at his fingertips. He had thousands of angels at his, at his beck and call. He was a lord of an army, and he was the one who was in the true center of everything. And what Haggai is doing is he's reminding the people of Israel, returning to the land was not about them getting back all of their stuff, all of the comforts of home. Returning to the land was about dwelling in the presence of God again. This is where we have to understand that a temple is more than a temple. When Haggai tells the people to get work building, get to work building the temple, he's not telling them, listen, guys, we really need to have a bigger building. If we had a gymnasium and a community center, then all the other nations are going to want to come here, and it's going to be great. For Haggai, building the temple represents something much, much bigger than just having a nice building. As we look through Scripture, we realize that the temple is God's dwelling place among, in the midst of his people. It's wrapped up in God's honor among the nations. You see, Israel's enemies have been taunting them for years, saying, your God is no God because he didn't protect you from us. We came in and wiped you out and carted you off. Your God doesn't really exist. He has abandoned you. And what Haggai is telling the people is that that's not true. God has not abandoned them. He is still in their midst, and they need to get to work to rebuild his house because the temple is an expression of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. It's an expression that God will not leave his people desolate forever. The temple is the place where God meets his people face to face. The temple was more than a temple. It was an incarnation of all that God stood for and all that he would do for his people. In the age that was about to dawn, it's the inbreaking of God into this world like none other. The temple was a reminder to the people of Israel that their return to the land was about a return to the presence of God. It's a reminder that their spiritual realities had physical connections. And as we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we see that Jesus calls himself the true temple. The temple points us to Jesus, the true meeting place of God and humanity. And it's a temple that gets torn down and rebuilt in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Then we turn a bit further in the New Testament and we see that the church is now the temple of God. So if you're a Christian, you are now the meeting place of God and his creation, reaching upward to the reality of God and reaching outward to embrace his world. And you're bearing the message of reconciliation to the ends of the earth. We are being built up into his temple, which has all sorts of implications for how Christians are to relate to one another, how we're supposed to live our lives, and it really, really focuses our understanding of our mission in this world. The temple is so much more than just a building, it is an intersection of heaven and earth, an outpost for the new world that is yet to come. It is a precursor for the time when God will dwell finally and fully in the midst of his creation and heaven and earth will be united forever. That's what the temple represents, and that is the reality that Haggai is calling on the people of Israel to act out, to live out of this this new reality. And it's important for us to notice that as Haggai points out to the people their lack of satisfaction, the fact that, Their food seems to disappear. Their money seems to disappear. He doesn't implore them to just think about things and then change their minds. He's not even asking them to speak what they've done wrong. He never once tells them to repent. Instead, he says, rebuild the temple. Get to work. Your priorities have been all backward. You've been looking out for yourselves rather than placing God at the center of your lives. And just like Jesus will many, many years later, Haggai tells the people, essentially, actions speak louder than words. The solution is not to say, God, we're sorry, we're going to try harder next time. The solution is to realize that God is truly at the center of all things. And when he is at the center of your life, all you have to do is act out that realization in the power of the Spirit. This is what Haggai is trying to get across to the people when he says, rebuild the temple. That is an action of repentance. It's a life of repentance by living out your new core conviction. Now, some of you here may be a bit skeptical of organized religion. Uh, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, you may have been in churches and that have used this text for a very specific reason, and so you're probably waiting for the shoe to drop. What's the building campaign, Steve? How much money do we have to give this week? And are you going to really promise us that if we just give a little bit more to Jesus, then everything in our life is going to be fantastic? In a word, no. I'm not going to tell you that. And actually, I think the very fact that for many churches, Haggai only gets dusted off when there's a building campaign or financial need actually runs the risk of flying in the face of Haggai's message for us. See, Haggai's message is as important for churches corporately as it is for God's people individually. We have to make sure that God is at the center, not only of our lives individually, but of, at the center of what we do here at InTown. And this is where it can get really difficult, especially at an organizational level, because it is so easy for us to say, we are a God-centered church, and then we can baptize whatever we want into into doing God's business because we said we're a God-centered church. That's the tagline. And it's not necessarily that churches are being insincere. It's just that we don't really take time to think about what it means to be God-centered. I think oftentimes when we consider uh, being God-centered, we collude that with moral purity or recapturing the political vision of America to return to some golden age of morality before the 1960s ever happened. It's something static, something we can point to and hang on to. We may think that being God-centered means being so consumed with God's otherness, his holiness, his transcendence, and his inapproachability that we don't talk about the other stuff because we have to get people to understand that God is so much, much different than them, so far above them, and it is so easy for us to find one thing, one aspect of who God is, and latch onto it and try and pin God down as just that thing. We're pigeonholing him and chaining him to a certain idea. And then we say, we're God-centered. He's at the center of everything that we do. But friends, God is not static. He is on the move. And frankly, God does not want to pull us back to some golden age from the past. As Haggai tells the people of Israel, God is with you now. Stop looking for him back there, back when. If it's your personal history, your national identity, your religious identity, whatever it is, stop looking for God back there. He is with you now, even if things don't seem as great as they could be. We don't serve a God who sat in heaven and remained static. We serve a God who became human, a God who chases after his world untiringly, moving human history to its intended end. You see, If God was a house, you could sit in the living room, keeping Him in your sights, keeping Him as your center, and never have to get up from the couch. But God is not a house, He's a motorhome. Climb aboard and get ready for a journey, and it's a journey that is going to be uncomfortable. It's going to take you to unexpected places with unexpected people. Keeping God at your center is guaranteed to get you dirty. It's guaranteed to break your heart. It will probably get you ridiculed, and it may even leave you homeless and completely destitute. But in the end, in the end of all things, when heaven and earth finally collide forever, and God sets up his dwelling among his people once and for all, all of that heartbreak, all of that destitution is going to become untrue, and God will be all in all. If you're here this morning saying, I'm not quite sure yet, I'm not a Christian, and I don't know if I can really buy all of this, I invite you to just try an experiment. Consider the things that you have been seeking after, hoping that they will bring you satisfaction. And if you're honest with yourself, I think you might find that they're not as satisfying as you hoped. So ask Jesus to show himself to you, to become your center to become the fulfillment of everything that you have been longing for and searching for. But if you're here and you are a Christian, you've already placed your faith in Christ, then guess what? You are his temple. You are his dwelling place, the intersection of heaven and earth. So get to work. Keep building. Keep working. Take courage. Because God himself is in your midst. Let's pray together. Father, it's a challenging thing when our centers are pointed out as non-central to who we are. We place so much stock in so many things, hoping that we can find justification ourselves. And it always runs out. I ask that as we come to your table that we would be reminded that our justification is from you, that you have given us your righteousness, that you have given us purpose because you are at the center of all things. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.